city's been so quiet since the boys in green went back. But it only took them three months to put Porton on the map. Yes, the stadium's never heard the sound of cheers in all its years. When the players come on the field, the thousands singing in their ears. Green is the colour, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim. So let's give all of the boys a cheer for the Portland Timbers will be here. Today we have another original timber and someone who has made history for both Manchester United and the Portland Timbers. He's a midfielder's midfielder and the first Liverpudlian to join the podcast. I'm excited to welcome Portland Timbers' first number 12, Willie Anderson. Willie, how are you? I'm doing great. You know, I've been really excited about doing this because I've been listening to your podcast, you know, with Mickey Holborn, John Bain, and Chris Dangerfield. And I've really enjoyed them. And, you know, I've found out more about those guys in their hour chat with you than I ever, ever knew. So, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm excited about it. This is great. Oh, Willie, I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. Thanks for, for sharing that. That makes, uh, yeah, um, that's fantastic. And I, I've been hearing that same thing. And I hope um, maybe at the end of this chat, we'll get the same for you. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. So I'm going to start with a formal introduction, and this is going to be a mouthful for me because you've done a lot, but uh, I'll read through this, and if I'm incorrect in anything, do tell me. Willie was, born in Liverpool, <laughs> Willie was born in Liverpool in 1947 and played his youth soccer for Manchester United, a club where he made his first senior professional appearance at the age of 16 when he started against Burnley. In 1965, when Manchester United played Liverpool in the FA Charity Shield match, Anderson came on for Dennis Law, becoming the first substitute used by Manchester United. Anderson played for Aston Villa and Cardiff City, where he was Bluebird's teammates with future Timbers, Bill Irwin and Clive Charles. Because of the, excuse me, because of the Welsh Cup final in 1975, Anderson joined the 75 Timbers for their fourth match of the inaugural season, a road tilt to Vancouver. In that match, Anderson registered the first Timbers, I'm sorry, the Timbers' first ever Cascadia assist and the first of what would become the NASL second all-time Timbers' 53 assists. In the next match, his first home for Portland, Anderson scored his first Timbers goal, an overtime sudden-death winner against the Rochester Lancers. He bookended his 1975 Timbers assist with a sudden-death winner at home in the playoffs when his cross from the left side found Tony Betts, who finished to beat Seattle 2-1 in the Timbers' first ever playoff game. After a brief return to Cardiff City, Anderson once again joined the Timbers, this time for good, in 1977, where he'd go on to make 177 total appearances outdoors until the team folded in 1982, when Anderson was the NASL Timbers' all-time appearances leader. The last years of Anderson's playing career were also included indoor stints with the Wichita Wings and Portland Timbers. He's made his home here ever since, working and coaching in Portland, and previously lending his knowledge to the game to KPTV's Timbers coverage. That's a mouthful. <laughs> it is. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quite a career. If we, if I read mine, it would be a lot shorter. <laughs> no, you know, I uh, I just got, well, you know, I always thought I got lucky, but, you know, you, I was given a great gift of having some high-class ability at soccer, football, and, you know, I 
was in the right place at the right time and got signed up by United when I was 15. And it was a shock of my life because, you know, I was the best kid around where I grew up. And we were all good because that's all we ever did. We played soccer all day. And then I went to Manchester United and I was most probably the worst kid there. And it was such a... And I, something I'd never known before where everybody was better than me. And it was like, oh, my gosh. And I just thought, you know what, I better start working hard here or I ain't going to be around long. And it was funny after, by the time I was 17 and signed full-time pro there, you know, there was only three of us left out of 20 that they signed the year they signed me, all school kids. And that three was... John Fitzpatrick, George Best, and me. So, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was an amazing couple of years, you know, because you just figure out, wow, this is really hard, and this isn't like playing at high school anymore. You know, this is the real thing. So, yeah, it was a kind of a, here's your opportunity. You better make the best of it, you know. Yeah, so you've sort of uh, you've sort of answered the first three questions I was going to answer, but I think I want to summarize them to make sure we didn't miss anything because I'm curious. Uh, you're from Liverpool, but you ended up with Manchester United, so I'm, I'm curious how that process happened, uh, and also what what's like life like as an apprentice footballer, or what was it like? Okay, uh, you know, I was uh, I was getting coached at my high school by a Liverpool footballer soccer player who was an outside left and his name was Alan Acourt and he gave me one-on-one lessons at school I don't know how it worked out I have no idea why it was me and I found out after I signed for Manchester United that my soccer coach at high school had me lined up to go and play for Liverpool but you know I got on Lancashire schoolboys which was like playing for Oregon State, you know, and we played other counties and we ended up, I think my last game was going to be played at Old Trafford against, you know, I'm not, I can't remember who it was, some schoolboys team. And I played in that and the next day I'm sitting at home with my mom in uh, Liverpool, Heighton, Liverpool, and a car parks outside our house, and that was amazing in itself because nobody had a car in my street, and nobody you never ever saw a car. And even more amazing, two guys got got out with blazers and collar and ties on, and come walking down our path to my house, and that was like never ever saw that. Two look like well-to-do, well-dressed guys getting out of a car coming to my house and they were two Manchester United scouts never forget John Ashton and oh I forget the other guy's name and they knocked on my door and it was just me and my mum and my mum answered it and said and they said hey we're we're Manchester United scouts can we come in and talk to you and your husband about your son and my dad wasn't home from work yet so they said, okay, we'll come back when he's home. We'll come back in an hour. And I'll never forget the, one of the guys, John Ashton, I think, said to my mum, have you got any pens in the house? 
and mind on looked and said, and he was said, no, we're only joking. We don't want to sign for anybody else by the time we come back. And they came back, and my dad was home, and they talked to my mum and dad about me going to play for United. And uh, all I said to them, I'll never forget, was I won an apprenticeship. And I meant I won, because I didn't think I'd make it, I wanted an apprentice toolmaker, apprentice plumber. That's what I meant. But they thought I meant they wanted, I wanted an apprenticeship footballer, you know, instead of just signing amateur footballers. And they said, yeah, oh, yeah, we can do that. I went, great. And I'll never forget, they give me dad a white envelope full of money, which I never saw me dad suck it. And they signed for it. My mum and dad signed for me there and then. And, you know, I was signed up by Manchester United. The first thing I did, though, when I signed, I run out my house. I run down the street to where all my mates were. We had this shed in one of our friend, my mates' backyard. And they were all in there. And I never forget it. I run in the shed. And I said, guess what? And they went, well, what? He said, I've just signed for Manchester United. Ah, get out of here. You're trying to be funny or what? And said, no, I'm serious. I've just signed for Manchester United. And it was like, wow. You know, it was, and they wouldn't, didn't believe me. It was like such a letdown, you know. But I remember <laughs> I went to school the next day and took, went to my football soccer coach and said, hey, uh, I'm leaving in next week because I've just signed for Manchester United. And he went crazy. He said, what do you mean? Just signed for Manchester United? I said, just signed for Manchester United. He said, I've got you lined up to go to Liverpool, who I was a supporter of. Love Liverpool. Went to watch him every weekend, you know. And he was like, I've got, I still, you didn't tell me. And he just went crazy. <laughs> that was that, you know. I'd gone and... I'd left school in like three days after they signed me and went up to Manchester. So, and I've been an apprentice, you know, it was, uh, it was great. Cause what they did, they would like, for me, I came from Liverpool. It was only a hour and a half train ride away, way, but you lived in Manchester and they put you in with a family who would look after you, feed you, you know, do everything you needed. And they, what they did, they try and put you in with other kids, you know, with the players. So the house I lived in was only about 400 yards from Old Trafford, and it was with this old couple. And there was room for three of us. And, you know, it ended up that there was three of us in there. So we had the time of our lives, and you settled in really quick, and, you know, you go to practice together and all that. And what an apprenticeship was is you'd practice in the morning with all the younger players. You wouldn't practice with the first team. And in the afternoons, you'd go back to the old Trafford Stadium because we had a training ground we used to practice on. And you'd, you know, clean up the boots, clean up the locker rooms, you know, brush the terraces. You'd do all the menial jobs. And it, that was it. They just kind of kept you your feet on the ground, and you know you would dirt cleaning up. I mean, you go into the locker room sometimes, the first team and that, and they throw shirts at you and dirty boots and everything. 
clean that, you know, all in fun, but, you know, you did all that kind of stuff, cleaned out the showers and the baths, and I remember I made my debut when I was 16, and on a Saturday, and on Monday, they would not let me practice training. They made me just clean up the first-team dressing room after I'd just played with them on Saturday. They're all coming in after the game, getting ready to practice. And I'm there in my street clothes, picking up the dirty stuff. And they made me clean all the boots that afternoon. And, you know, there must have been about 40 of us who played on the weekend. And, you know, I had to clean everybody's boots. After you just made your debut at 16 years old, university. (laughs) It was like, whoops. So yeah, they they were pretty small like that because it was it was a great club, Manchester United, for bringing bringing and developing young players. It was well known, you know, they were called the Busby Babes, and it was uh, you know it was great. It was a, it was the greatest intro into being a professional because you were with all these kids your age, you know, you lived away from home, which I loved because my dad was really strict. Where you going, and he, you know what you're doing, and you got to be in by nine thirty, you know. And I went to these, we call them digs, live with this family. I never forget it. They said, "Here's your key. Come in the back door. Your supper will be by the back door. Please be quiet when you come in." And I'm thinking, I can come in any time I like. It's like, wow, freedom. It's great, right? So glad I left Liverpool. You know, I never regretted yeah. not going to Liverpool because my dad would have been like, oh, he would have been double strict if I would have been playing for Liverpool. So, so yeah. I I heard a couple of things in, in your responses that I I hope if anyone's listening with someone who, you know, especially a younger soccer player, is one is, you know, you never, you should never give up. You know, you're always going to have challenges. You, you get to a point and there's always someone better. And so you've got to rise to that challenge if you want to keep progressing. And the other thing is you never know who's watching. You're there to play uh, what would be a high school or college game equivalent here, probably going to go to Liverpool and you just don't know who's watching. So, you know, I think that's a good lesson for, for definitely younger players. Um, It's just, you know, go about your business uh, and and do the right thing. You know, well, it is. I also want to, Oh yeah, go on. It is because, you know, there's always somebody better than you in, in anything you do in life, you know. I mean, you, you're never the greatest ever. You know, look at Messi now. You know, They're still arguing about him being the greatest soccer player ever, and they will, you know. So you just got to put out every time you do it, give your all, and work harder, whatever you do, because, you know, there's somebody out there going to be working harder than you to try and become what you want to become. And, you know, it's... the the better level of soccer or anything you get to, the people get better because they work hard and they're really motivated and they have the desire and it, you have to have all that just to compete. And, you know, I, I don't know what it was with me, but I was really com- quietly competitive. And, you know, I just got my head down and I remember being embarrassed and that, you know, they had a, all the young kids, they had a, in the locker room, we were all getting changed. It would be about 15, 16, 17. Hey, let's, 
little bit. I bet I'm the first to play in the first team. I'll never forget it. <laughs> he went round the room, you know, and oh, no, we think it'll be him. We think it'll be him. Nobody said anything about me. I was just sitting there thinking, oh, God, I'm the worst in here. And, you know, self-confidence is everything in anything you do, sports, life, whatever. And you can lose that really fast. And these kids were, you know, no messing around. It was like, whoa. And I ended up being the first one to play in the first team. But, you know, when they went round the room, I was not even on the list. It was, you know... (laughs) daunting to say the least but it was great that, loved it good. yeah and that that first can you, what do you remember about that that game it was a it was a home match right and you were 16 your first yeah you know it was uh on december the 26th and over christmas in england you play a couple of games in two days like the day before christmas and the day after christmas and so there's only like a, a one-day break in between. And the first team, Manchester United, they went and played at Burnley t- two days before my debut, and they got thrashed 5-1. So we come back, and we're all in, you know, come in on the Monday, and the teams used to go up in the home team locker room. They'd pin a paper team, and there'd be four teams, first team reserved, a team, B team, and you know, I'd usually I started in the B team, ended up doing the A team, and now and then getting games in the reserves. And I remember coming in that day of the game and looking at the team sheet, thinking, "Bloody hell, I'm not on it." <laughs> I looked at the B team, no. Looked at the A team, no. Looked at the reserves, no. Didn't even look at the first team. <clears throat> I thought, "Oh God, what's going on here? I haven't got a game." And then somebody came up and tapped me on the show and went, hey, go with the first team. And I, I looked at it and thought, oh, my God. And if the team wasn't fifth. It was just a list of players. And me and George Best were on that list who weren't regulars, you know. It was like, oh, my God, okay. That's great. And I thought, you know, because what they would do at Old Trafford, Manchester United, they, when you were a good young one, they would take you away with the first team to games let you sit on, you know, in the coach, go on a dinner with them, go to the game and get all that involved in you and get you excited. And it was like, hey, you know, you're on this, the, the, the edge of it here, you know. You just got to keep pushing and you can be part of this. And it was a great thing to do. I thought, well, you know, we're going to be there and we're going to watch the game if nothing else. And then Matt Busby was the coach and he pulled me and George over, <laughs> never forget it, and he said, hey, guys, I'm going to start you today. <laughs> I looked at him and said, oh, my God. And Bestie, Bestie had played one game before me. And I was outside, right? Bestie was going to be outside left. And he just said, hey, you're on the first team tonight. Congrats. And let's go to, they used to take us to a golf club for the home games. And you'd get, go on eating then you'd fool around with the guys and then you'd get on the bus and back to Old Trafford like at two o'clock and get ready for the game. <clears throat> so that's how I found out. It was like, oh my God. And I couldn't tell anybody, you know. 
hey, I'm, I'm yeah. starting to drink, you know, I, we were just involved in it right away. So it, it was kind of good in a way because you didn't have to panic about it, you know, you just did it. We went to the, and I forget, went to the golf club, did all that, come back, got changed in the locker room, and there was a guy, really famous, Bobby Charlton. He was playing, yeah. and he he come over to me and said, hey, you're going to be great. Don't worry about it. He said, every time you get that ball, if you're in trouble, I'll be 10 yards away and just give it to me. I went, oh, okay. And he was. He was 10 yards away just about every time I got the ball. So, yeah, that's fun. And we ended up winning 5-2. And it was amazing. Like The thing I'll never forget is I running out at Old Trafford and onto the field and there's 60 odd thousand there screaming and it was just like amazing that feeling never ever forgot it greatest feeling you'll ever ever have you I mean you're nervous and but you're excited and then once the game starts everything goes away you're like in a cocoon you know and you don't hear nothing you just part of the game so yeah it was great the funny story with that though I guess my dad found out listening to the radio and Liverpool's only an hour and a half away so he my dad didn't have a car he called my brother-in-law up and said hey Billy and all my family called me Billy he said hey Billy's starting for United today we should go my brother-in-law big Liverpool fan said yeah let's do it and he took my sister, who was nine months pregnant, and they all jumped in the car, my other brother-in-law as well, all drove to Manchester, just as they're on the outskirts of Manchester, coming into the game, my sister starts having the baby. <coughs> they, oh stopped. they stopped, tell the police, hey, you know, we'll go in the game, tell them the story, my, you know, I'm going to start. And they give her a police escort to the local hospital, my brother-in-law and all of them dropped it off <laughs> and came, came and went to the game. They got a police escort to the game. And my sister's in labor at the hospital while I made my debut. And she had her daughter that same day. And that, but they didn't miss the game. They came and watched the game. And I, I just add to that a great story about yeah. that. We played Saturday. So my sister's in hospital in Manchester, had the baby, so I'm going to go and visit her on Monday. So I take George Best with me. Well, every nurse in that hospital, (laughs) George Best, George Best, you know. It was like being with a rock. First time I ever felt like I'd been with a rock star, you know. We walked to my sister, looked, chatted to her, saw the baby and everything. That hospital was just buzzing because George Best was in there. It was great. It was fun, yeah. This is fantastic. Yeah, it was. It was, uh, it was great. It was really fun. So, so yeah, and you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned Liverpool. You're from there. You watched them growing up. Uh, everyone around you is a fan. You got to play against them at the Charity Shield and actually made some, uh, I think, significant uh, history that game by when you substituted on right yeah yeah it was uh that was something else you know they, they had the charity shield shield game and i was at home in liverpool 
Um, my dad and mum didn't have a phone or nothing, and it's Saturday morning, the day of the game, and we get a telegram, and it says, get to the stadium, get to Old Trafford now before kickoff. You're in. You're going to be part of the game. I went, oh, shoot. Great. So I go to Old Trafford, you know, on the train, and they pull me over and say, you know, Dennis, Lord's going to play, but we don't know how long he can last. He's struggling a bit. And if he comes off, you're going to have to go on for him. I said, okay, you know. And you were sitting on the bench, and he lasted 10 minutes. And he had to come off, and they threw me on. And yeah, played in the charity shield against Liverpool. And the, one of the funny things in that game, <laughs> funny how you remember stuff, Rowdy Yates was their big, huge centre half. Ronnie Yates, he's like six foot two, and he's a man mount. And I watched him, you know, growing up and everything. And a corner come in, and I'm running in to try and head it, and I head him instead by mistake. And his nose went wonky and blood and everything. And I, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, I didn't mean that. And Tommy Smith, he used to play like their sweeper position with a tough Liverpool lad and he was big and he just walked over to me and he says, I'm going to have to break your leg for that, son. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my God, <laughs> you know, if he, if he catches me, he will. But he didn't catch me, that's for sure, you know. Yeah, yeah so yeah, I played and that was great and I got a you know, you get a little miniature charity shield for playing in it. And I think, um, I, I think we beat them. I can't remember. But it was, you know, full house and all that. It was great. Yeah. But that's, you know, you know, there weren't, subst- the season before, there weren't substitutions in association football. And that was the first season oh, I, there was one. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was so you the, were the first First, You were one of the first ever used at that in, in a sanctioned game, but also for, for United, which is pretty significant. Yeah, you know, because the Charity Shield is like the first first big game of the season. You know, you play uh, friendlies and warm-up games, and then, you know, they play the Charity Shield, and then next Saturday the season kicks off. So, yeah, it was the, the kickoff for the whole season, really. So, yeah, it was... Yeah, so it was, you know, a new, a new deal, really, a new rule, and you know, it's, uh, you were allowed one sub, and that was it that year. So, and yeah, it was so I want to ask and uh, use that as a segue into another great story. Um, I don't know if so, so the way they used to do it. I'm sure a lot of people know this already, but numbers one through eleven, those are the players. And then at first, if they had substitutes, maybe they didn't have a number on the jersey, but eventually the one substitute would be number 12, which makes perfect sense. Do you remember if you had a number in that, when you subbed on in that charity shield? And then can you tell us about how your first trip, your first game with Portland, when you're in the locker room at Vancouver, um, what happened there? with? Yeah, you know, I think for the charity shield, I just had a blank shirt because there was, you know, I don't think there was a 12 on it. You know, well, I I could be wrong, but I think I'd remember that. 
I think yeah. they just had a blank shirt and I went on with a blank shirt because you didn't have your names on the shirts in them days. You just had the number, 1 through 11. Mm-hmm. Your name wasn't on the shirt at all, you know. Whoever wore the 11 shirt, you know, if it was a different player, you got the same 11, number 11 shirt. So, so I think it was a plain number, but when I come to the, the States and, you know, I, my first game was away at Vancouver, and you know I, I got there late. I think I think I got there on a Thursday or a Wednesday. I can't remember. And Vic gave me oh yeah, Vic gave me got there on a Wednesday. Vic Crow gave me Thursday off for jet lag, and I'd been playing all the time. You know, my last game was the Saturday before, and then we flew to Vancouver on Friday when I got to meet the guys. And I think we played Saturday. I can't remember Friday or Saturday night. And I'm in the locker room and got, um, you know, I'd never played for a team in green and yellow before. It was like, wow, this is kind of funky. And then I saw they had the names on the shorts. So I thought, wow, that's great. And then I saw mine. I oh, and I was number twelve or. I thought, God, you know, I've come all this bloody way to be a sub, you know. I'm not happy about that. And I yeah. said something to somebody and they just laughed at me. He said, nah, that's your number for whatever you play, you know. That's it for the season, you know. I went, oh, okay. So, yeah, I got 12 and I wasn't happy about being a 12. I thought, God, 12, you know, it's like a sub shirt. And then I found out in America that, you know, the quarterbacks would be number 12 a lot. And they'd be the creative and all that. And then I kind of mellowed out. But I remember the beginning, I didn't like being 12. That's a dubious start to, to joining your new team. Uh, it was. But yet, right? Yeah, it was. It was like, oh, my God. But, you know, everything was di- – well, not everything, but there was a lot of things different about playing and yeah. over here than what I was used to back home. Yeah, including turf. And that game was on turf. And so yeah. uh, I'm going to segue into you You come to the, this, you're playing on short rest. You're in the Welsh Cup final a few days before. You had to acclimate yourself, not just to the place, but the travel, uh, the jersey yeah. number. And then you step out on turf. But that game, you got your first assist for the Timbers as well. Do you remember that? Yeah, you know, it's uh... – it was, you know, the the hardest thing about, you know, playing on turf was figuring out what shoes to wear, you know, because in England you'd have screwing studs and rubber sole studs. And if the grounds were hard and that, not slick, then you could wear your rubber sole boots. So I went out to warm up and tried them out. It was like, whoa, this ain't too clever. But I had to play them I and mean, that's all I had. Um, so that was different. And then, you know, it was makes the ball so lively on turf. I mean, you know, more spring bouncing it. And it's, it was harder for players like me who like to get the ball and run with it because the ball's always running away from you. When you're playing grass, the grass holds it up for you so it's easier to, you know, run with it and dribble with it and all that stuff. So it took some adjusting for a you know, my style of play. And then, you know, at Old, 
at the Civic Stadium, you know, the baseball field. So he had them um, like bases, and they never covered them. They just, you know, brushed the soil down a bit. And, you, you know, you'd be on the turf, on a baseball spot, and you'd be ducking and diving all over the field. It was kind of crazy. But, you know, it's like everything else. You just, it becomes the norm after a short while. And, you know, you know, soccer's soccer. I mean, you know, you pass the ball around, you get shots off, you score goals. I mean, it doesn't much change too much depending on where you're at. But, you know, I love grass. You know, I like feel for like the timber players. You know, I just think I can't understand why they don't put a grass field in there. And I, I, I know I'm sure it's expenses. You know, it's all about money, but it's better for the players. It's better on your body, and you know, players like it. But you know, you you do with what you dealt with. You know, and yeah, yeah, either get used to it and do you, you know, figure it out and adjust to it or you go somewhere else. So. And so, uh, what was that, that first assist like? Do you remember the, I, I think we've talked about this before oh, yeah. too. Uh, a little... Yeah. I, I, I was wide right and I was cut, cutting inside. I remember I was around the edge of the box and I seen Barry Powell coming up and, you know, I, felt like I couldn't get anywhere else. So I just backheeled it to him and he just whacked it and it flew in. It was like, whoa. I think we ended up winning that game 2-0. Yeah, we did. We Great. beat yeah, the Whitecaps 2-0 and yeah. And, you know, that was something else. I'm thinking, everybody's saying, you got an assist. <laughs> I was thinking, so what's an assist? You know, what do I pass it to him? No, you get points for that. It was like, for an assist, you know? Yeah. It was like, oh, my God. Yeah, so that was brand brand new, you know? So That's a lot of adjustment in a short period of time. Well, yeah, it, it was, you know, and it had to be because, you know, I missed four games. I, I think I come out and missed three games, and that was my, the fourth game. I don't I miss games, so you know, my number of games to adjust and that was a lot short. You know, I have to be shorter than everybody else because they'd all been there for about a month and so yeah, you know, but I think if you got a I always felt you got ability, all you gotta do is learn how to trap the ball, control it and pass it. So, you know, it's just a little bit different on turf, but you know, we practice on it. It was the worst turf in the league, by the way, Civic Stadium. It was like playing on the street. It was rock hard, just about wore out. And, boy, if you come down on it, it was like dead, deathly dead, because you just burn the skin off your body, you know. It It wasn't a lot of fun to play on. But thank God the crowds, you know, we got big crowds, which made it exciting, because the feel was disaster so speaking of adjusting in your second game with the timbers uh it's a home game and you are now faced with something i'm guessing they didn't have in england which is not only overtime if the game's tied but also sudden death overtime um, and yeah you, never you know, you, yeah. You, so you ended the game as well that game with by scoring right yeah it was a 
never played in an overtime game in my life. You know, never, no idea what sudden death was. And, you know, my first home game, it's funny, the Rochester Lancers. You know, I think I scored three straight seasons in overtime against Rochester, the winning goal. And I remember that first one. Somebody lobbed in across, and the goalkeeper come out, and he didn't control it. It bounced off his chest, and I was just about three or four yards away from it. And it just dropped me, and I just volleyed it back in the net. Never get it. It was like a gift from heaven, you know. Here, here, will I ever go at that? And it just fell perfectly for me, and I just volleyed it in. And it's like, and that was it. It was like, welcome to Portland, you know. Be a hero for the night. Yeah. And speaking of hero for the night, another popular sudden death goal. So at the end of the season, first playoff game, which is probably something else new to you. I mean, you've played in cups before, but an in-season yeah. playoff game, right? Uh, you yeah. had the assist to Tony Betts. And, and that's interesting because because of the corner kick and the broken play, you and Jimmy Kelly were on the same side after the corner. Uh, and you've even said yeah. you prefer crossing from the the right over the left side, but there you were. And Tony Betts himself was even a late substitution when Vic Crow just threw him at the game. He's throwing everything at it. Can you kind of walk us through that moment? Yeah, you know, it's when I came over from uh, the UK, I, I was playing outside left. You know, I started on the right, uh, the right winger, uh, but somewhere through my career, I started playing a lot more left-sided because I. I had two great feet, and I could cross the ball with both feet, so I could play both sides. So, you know, when I came over here, Jimmy Kelly was on the left side because Jimmy was all left foot. So I just automatically, Vic put me on the right side. So I'd play most of my time over there. But now and then in the games, I mean, Jimmy would switch. Jimmy would go on the right side, and i go the left. And I'd take the corners from the left a lot because I could bend them in with my right foot. So I was, you know, we got a corner and all the time and I went to take it and Jimmy stayed pretty close to where the corner was taken and I whacked the corner and it come out but it come out to Jimmy and Jimmy controlled it on the edge of the box and I'm just I'd just come off taking the corner so I'm right next to him really and I'm thinking he's going to cross it but he doesn't he knocks the ball behind the fullback for me to run on to. It was a great ball, but I wasn't expecting it because I thought he's just going to cross it. And I, I just run and I I didn't look up. I, I just thought, I've got to get this around a six-yard box. And it's on my left foot, which I'm a right-footed player. So I just bend it, but I don't lob it. I clip it in. And there's Tony Betts, six yards out, right on his head. Bingo, we win the game. So, yeah. It was all just corner kicks and Jimmy being staying over there because, you know, he was on the left side and I had gone over to take it. And then Jimmy was smart enough to put that great ball in behind their defense. And, you know, I got on the end of it and hit a great cross and Tony just cleaned it with his head. It was a great header. And then everybody ran onto the field. It was great. Oh, a pandemonium. It was like which was great for players, you know. I mean, it was great being having a fan base like we had that year. I mean, it was just so enjoyable to play for them, you know, and perform for them. And 
because you know you got the feeling that the, not a lot of them knew what was going on, but they were just so into it. You know, <laughs> they never booed you because they didn't know what was right and what was wrong or what was good or what was bad. You know, in England, they crucify it at home if you do something bad. But, you know, in Portland, never. It was such a a relief and no stress, you know. The crowd didn't put you under stress. Back in the UK, they can put you under a lot of stress. The home fans... Because, you know, when they start getting on to you, boy, your confidence goes right out the window. But in Portland, you know, they were just all 100% positive. It was great. Loved it. And before before I go forward in your playing career, and I'm actually going to circle back to the fans uh, at the end of this, but I want to go backward a little bit. And I, I've seen another clip of you playing soccer, and it's against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. And you're with Cardiff City. And so some things that stuck out to me in that, it was a highlight clip of the match. Um, and I found it when I was looking for, uh, you know, video of Clive Charles playing when I was writing those essays. Uh, so the first thing that stuck out to me is you're on the team with future Timbers, Bill Irwin and Clive Charles. Bill's in goal, Clive's the captain playing in the back. The second thing that stood out to me is how fantastic of a winger you were. You took, there's one point where Clive scores a penalty, but it came from you getting a throw in just inside the half, going through two or three guys and then getting clipped down in the box. But uh, to me, watching older highlights of English soccer, it was very, it seemed very direct, but that was, um, that wasn't, that was, you know, just you slicing through people and it was fun to watch. Um, you know, so I'm curious, what, what, yeah, go ahead. You know, uh, when I went to Manchester United as a kid, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, like systems you played. And because I was wide, a winger, oh no, a winger, old-fashioned on the right, my team talk would be, and I'll never forget it, all you've got to do is hit that dead ball line at least four times in a game and get in a good cross. And that was my team talk. Take people on, go at them, go by them, get in a good cross. And, you know, that stuck with me my whole career. I was really direct. I loved you know, my game was give me the ball, get out the way, you know, and let me take people on because yeah. I enjoyed that. I was, you know, I was pretty quick. I had good control. And I could go inside and outside because I had two good feet. So, you know, I, I just, my strength to me was running at people and taking them on. And that clip against Cardiff, you know, you don't know what you're doing. I got a ball and you just go at people and then things open up for you. You go by one, you go by two. And then the guy clipped me in the box. But, you know, when you're going at people at speed, well, you, you know, I'm sure you know that, that, you know, things open up. People have to come to pick you up or they try and cover. And, you know, that was my game, you know, go by people or getting good crosses. But that was all Manchester United, you know. It was like they were really forward thinking, you know, let's attack, attack, attack. And they always had great forwards. And, you know, that was the team talks. And, you know, the, as my career went on, you know, I played for coaches that would talk to you and I'd be a winger. And all they talked to you about, don't forget, you've got to get back and mark him. You've got to get back and cut him out. And I'm thinking, well, what about me going forward? You know, am I going to have any energy left to doing that? You know, you were playing like a fullback and they expected you to be a winger as well, you know, but, some 
coaches just it's all about defense, you know, but at Old Trafford it was all about, hey, get at them. So that was great for that. And that just, you know, I, I was at United for five years and that was my ground. And then I, you know, it just made me the kind of player that I became. So, yeah, so and, and, with, um, Clive, with Clive, you know, I played with Clive at Cardiff and he lived in the same village as I did and got to know him through that. Clive was one of the funniest people he ever met, ever met. Always laughing, telling a joke. I mean, he'd keep the locker room in stitches and he had a great personality. You know, and I can understand how he did so well at college because, you know, anybody you recruited, their parents would love him, you know. I mean, he had that great London accent. So, yeah, he was a, and he was a good player. He was at West Ham, so he was a footballer. So, you know, he had good skills and all that. So, and he was just a great personality. And Bill, you know, I played with Bill Carter. In fact, Bill, I was playing over here, and Bill came, I said, Bill, come out and, have a holiday vacation with me. He said, all right. So we come out for three weeks and stayed at my house. And I set him up with his wife, Liz, who's his wife now. Oh. I set him up. And he supposed to stay at my house for three weeks. I think he stayed three nights. <laughs> he met her and they just hit it off great. And they've been hitting it off great ever since. And yeah. I went to his wedding and everything, and uh, he ended up playing playing here and living here. And Bill is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet, ever. Absolutely. Ever meet. Great yeah. guy. You know, everybody likes Bill. And, you know, him and Liz have a great relationship, great kids. You know, it's uh, it worked out for him. It was great. And he just come over to check out America and spend some time with me, and it just changed his whole life. Uh, yeah, uh, I want to ask about. I hate changing the subject this way because that's a fantastic story, and my own brain is going to just stories of Bill and, and just you're right how wonderful he is. Um, I do also want to talk about indoor soccer because we talked about adaptations and we just talked about your game slicing through people, which is one thing when you've got you know 100 to 120 yards to work with, but. You played a few seasons with Wichita and the Timbers indoors. What did you think of the indoor game? You know, it was uh, totally different. You know, the mindset was totally different. And, you know, the why the Timbers went indoor was, you know, they were paying all those guys year-round salaries. And then when the season ended, you know, they were still paying us but not getting anything in return. So, you know, it was a financial decision for the Timbers to go indoor because we all were getting paid anyway, so they didn't give us any more money to play in the indoor. You know, it was just what you were getting, but you're going to play indoor as well. So that's why that come about. And then the, the other reason for that with the Timbers was the the other league was doing really well, you know, and the Timbers loaned me out to Wichita for the for our their season, which was like out out of the timber season, so you know it was great. And you know you, we all made extra money. You know you could get get some decent money to go and play for three months, and that's why you went. You know they give you a car, an apartment, 
I went to Wichita, the worst place in the world. Never. It was like, oh, God. They'd give us days off, and it'd be like, nah, I don't want a day off. There's nothing to do, you know. It was just not a big fan of Wichita. Um, but they had an amazing crowd, and they did well indoor, and, you know, it was kind of different. And I had a good pal of mine, Jimmy Ryan, who uh, we were started at United together, and he, we were in digs together when we were, you know, 16, 17. And, you know, I end up by being his roommate back in Wichita, you know, I mean, on the road. So, you know, that was kind of fun. But uh, the Timber, I mean, it was, it was okay, you know. It, it, it was... I don't know, it was blood and thunder. You ran out there for two minutes, like a scalded cat up and down, you know, getting shots off, hitting the boards, all this stuff. And, you know, they get scored to be like 15, 12 and stuff like that. Yeah. And the crowd kind of liked it. But, you know, I liked the outdoor game. I mean, I played indoor because, you know, well, the Timbers I had to. And Wichita, I went for the money. And part of my deal with Wichita was like, you know, I I just negotiated some tickets to to the UK out of it as well. So, you know, it was all just a financial thing. It wasn't like, God, I've got to play indoor. So and the timbers next, I had. To. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That that that's where my next few questions are about the business side of, of soccer. A lot of people don't know, and why would they? It was one game almost 50 years ago, but in, in 1979, there was a, a strike, a player strike. lasted, I think, a weekend. But um, you didn't play in a game that because a lot of players didn't. But on April 14th, the Timbers played Minnesota at home, lost 2-0. Uh, and Tony Betts and Ray Martin played for Minnesota in that game. <laughs> you know, it's, well, the, the strike, I was the state, the team rep. For the union, and uh, we we were just striking because they could to get no cut contracts. You know, it was like they, you could sign a contract in the NASL, and the team, you know, you come all the way from England, bring your family and everything, and the team could just say, "Ah, oh, now we don't want you anymore," and you send you on. And there's nothing you could do about it. And, you know, they held your rights and everything. So it was just, we wanted a little bit of security. It wasn't about money enough, and it was just security. So, you know, we, of course, the league, the teams and that weren't happy about us unionizing, and so they didn't want it. And then when we went on strike, we went on strike, I, I don't know, for maybe four or five days, I can't remember. But, you know, we all, all did it just about the whole team and we practiced together on our own you know but the game we had no idea they were going to put out you know anybody they could find to play in it as the timbers and you know we i not not many of us went to game if any i don't know we kind of Mm -hmm. stuck together you know it was a lot of them didn't want to strike but just felt like they should Nobody wanted to do it, you know, it was like a last resort and I I don't know what any good came out of it or what, but you know, I think we were all really disappointed that they put a they fielded a team 
and put them out there at Civic Stadium, charge people, you know, see to watch them when the, you know, often they were like kids out of out of high school. I don't know, but yeah, I was uh, part of that. It wasn't fun. I wish it never happened, but you know, it it was like for somebody like me who'd come over, brought my family and everything, and I had no not a leg to stand on it. They just said, "Ah, oh, no, we don't want you anymore. You got to go home." So it's right. just trying to get some security. That's all. It's amazing that uh, I, when I was talking to Chris Dangerfield, listing the clubs he played for, how much he moved around. His his joke was that he has more clubs than Tiger Woods. But you're right. People had to, you know, people had to move around, and it was a it was a fact of life as as you were building the game here. Is that not just individuals, but their families. And I'm yeah, curious yeah. what it was like. Yeah. I was going to say, I'm, I'm curious what it was like later that season, because that was the 79 season. And then the last game of the 79 season was a home loss to the LA Aztecs, which had Johan Cruyff, uh, which isn't a, you know, no shame in losing to Cruyff and the Aztecs, but that was a game where people didn't know if they'd come back. They knew the team had to be sold before, uh, someone had to buy the team before the 80 season or it wouldn't exist. And it was kind of, to kind of complicate that, Vic Crow came back in the middle of that season and the team went on winning a tear, winning 11 of the last 17 matches, but it still wasn't enough to make the playoffs. And so I'm just thinking of all the different layers of that 79 season, um, you know, where the soccer's getting better when Crow returns, the results are coming. Uh, but then, you you know, there was that moment of a strike and then there's the potential the team may not exist in 1980. What was that like? playing through you know what you players you blanked all that out i mean you had this great ability of living for the moment you know when you're a professional athlete you're only as good as your next game you know i mean and you couldn't worry about next week next month i mean because you had no control over it and if the team folded, the league was a little bit dodgy then as well. So, you know, it, if you thought about it, you would have panicked and freaked out. But, you know, soccer players, we were like high school kids getting well paid, traveling great, and having all this fun. And, oh, by the way, we're playing soccer too. You know, it was it's a different life. I mean... I, you know, since I stopped playing, I've never found anything that comes even close to it. So, you know, your, your mindset's different. It's, yeah. you know, we're, we're kids in adult bodies, but, you know, mentally we're all these high school kids, you know, having fun and doing something you love and getting well paid to do it. So it, you just didn't think of the hard things in life, really. Yeah. So, so speaking of, and this is the last time I'm going to be here because, uh, but I'm curious about 1982 because at that point you're also three years older, and a lot of players, you know, the Timbers folded in '82. I think the Sounders were next the next year, and just the league was getting smaller and smaller. Um, but you stayed in Portland after that year, even when there was no team. Yeah, you know. In in a way, it was really good timing for me because, you know, I'm, I was 35, going on 36. You know, I was looking maybe to play another year, two years max. 
you know, there's no way I wanted to go and try and play somewhere else for a year or even two years, you know. It's like I love Portland. I The last three years I was playing, I asked the teams if I could become director of community relations so I could make some contacts within the business world for when I retired. Or really what I wanted was to do that and then move into the office when I stopped playing. But, you know, that went out the window and the team folded. So, you know, I, I was putting, I was stepped ahead of that. And it was good timing for, for me if it, if it could be. But, you know, I felt for people like John Bain, Brian Gant, people like Bill Irwin that, you know, were still young and had a really good few years ahead of them in their career. But, there, you know, there was very few places to go after that that were paying, you know, you to play for them. And indoor was one of them, you know. So, you know, that was a, an option for some of them. But there was no really outdoor game left, really. So, you know, I just thought, I love it here. I was, my goal was to retire here no matter what. When I stopped playing, I just loved I love Portland and Oregon from minute one. And it was like the only place I'd ever been because, you know, I'd been around a little bit was where I thought, I love it here. I could live here. And, you know, it worked out for me. You know, my career was just about ending anyway. And the team folded. It would have been nice if the team would have stayed around. Maybe it could have worked for them and that. But, you know, it didn't work out. But, you know... I just felt kind of lucky when I, you know, I'd think of the other guys thinking, God, you know, like John Bain, I think Bain, he was, I don't know, 28, maybe, maybe younger. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's at his whole, he hasn't even hit his peak yet. And he's, you know, got nowhere to go and play. So I, you know, I was like, you know, I thought about staying in the game, but you know, I, for me, I loved to play. You know, I wasn't a watcher. I wasn't a talker about it. I just went out there, and I always thought of myself as being an entertainer. You know, I'm going out there, and all I want is everybody in that stadium to look at me and go, wow, he's good, isn't he? You know, home and away. That's all I wanted, you know. I just got there and performed. I just felt like an entertainer. I thought we were, you know. We're out there entertaining 20,000 people here. You know, and so it was different for me. You know, I was never like, oh, God, so passionate about people like, you know, Jimmy Conway. Jimmy, you know, he lived and died for the game. And he loved it. You know, he's passionate about it. And I remember once being stuck on a plane with Jimmy for two hours sitting next to him, and he never stopped talking about soccer. And I was like, oh, talk about something else. You know, but that we were so different. You know, my mindset maybe because i started the man united where it was all hey you know let's entertain them let's go out and let's attack them you know and that's my sense for it so my attitude was kind of different so you know it all worked out for me and i just wanted to try something else and get away from soccer and and i did so and you mentioned uh or i mentioned earlier in this skip a, a, a few of these ahead, but you worked for, did some analysis work for KPTV. I'm curious, as, as you just talked about, you know, what you felt like as a player walking into a stadium. Um, 
did you is there anything you know 40 years later you're an an analyst analyst um or just going into that that place which is so different now it's providence park it looks different it there's a lot different but is there anything that just feels the same even the all these years later that takes you back to being a player you know i love being back the reason i love being back when we did the the program from within the stadium we'd be right next to the field right by the uh, the timbers army and you know we get there our show would start off an hour before kickoff so you're there while the crowd's coming in and start the buzz is starting to happen you see the players come out and warm up you know it's kind of fun seeing that but you know there's nothing like being a player I mean, I, I don't think you can replace that. I mean, it was great being on, on the t- TV, doing the announcing thing and all that stuff, because I really liked that. It was really enjoyable and it was fun. But there's nothing like being a player. You cannot replace that feeling when you run out that tunnel, just go on and play a game. Places fall, everybody's cheering, and you run out. It's like, you know, being a gladiator. (laughs) Face the lions, you know. I mean, you get hair off the back of your neck. You know, you're excited, you're nervous. It's so much fun. And there's nothing like it. I mean, I think, you know, the only thing I always thought would be like being a rock band. And you just that moment you walk out on stage and there's thousands of people there li- wanting to listen to you sing and perform. You know, we were like that. You'd run out and there's thousands of people there and they just wanted to watch us perform. So, yeah, it was... Uh, cannot replace that. I don't care what they do. You could be a coach, assistant coach, but you're not a player. Totally different animal. And that feeling you have, the excitement the ups and downs and, you know, winning and losing, playing great, scoring. There's nothing like it in the world. And, you know, for everybody who's never, ever felt that, I mean, you can feel that playing at high school, scoring, running out, you, you know, the crowd cheering you when you go out. I mean, nothing like it. And, you know, I, I've been in the radio, I was in the radio business from the moment I left soccer and that locker room banter going on the road with guys sitting in bars drinking laughing joking nothing ever comes close you know i was in the radio business for over 40 years you know you're part of a team but it's not like sports i don't know you know i I was lucky i played for over 20 years got paid to play, that's why I was, you know, what you call a professional, somebody who did pay to do it. And, you know, I got to do that and survive for over 20 years and, you know, greatest 20 years you could ever have, you know. For those who never made it, you know, I'm sorry you all missed it because it's such a beautiful way to live. And I have a few more questions if you don't mind, you're good. No, no, go. go. So when I when I interviewed you about the piece for the Cascadia rivalries, I asked what you missed, what left an impression, and you know we've covered some of that. But you 
you know, and it's the players, it's the, the teammates, it's, it's, it's a lot of that. But there was a specific moment you told me about in 1975 where Vic Crow uh, amended the training a little bit, and he had the team head up the ramp and, and run around the stadium. Uh, do you, can you talk about that moment and what that was about? Yeah, you know, Vic was pretty shrewd about the community. The whole team was in 75. You know, they knew we had to be part of the community for them to accept us. Because, you know, there wasn't much soccer going on in Portland when we got here. And so you couldn't, we couldn't have drew crowds from the soccer community because it wasn't that big. So he knew we had to get in there. And something I thought we did better than ever, the most, was their thought was if the Kids meet the players. The kids will want to go to the game to watch the players, and then the parents are going to have to take them. So I think that was it for us all. You know, we go out, do these clinics and all that, sign autographs, talk to everybody. We were so approachable. You know, these little guys in shorts with an English accent. You know, <laughs> long hair and all that stuff. And, we were approachable. You couldn't get close to a blazer. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow. So it was that smart. And we were at practice one day, and we had the semi-final coming up, I think, in the playoffs. I think we were going to play St. Louis. And St. Louis, in yeah. Yeah. And it was just after the, uh, the Seattle Sounders game where you the <laughs> overtime winner. Yeah, you know, and we're going to play St. Louis, and that's when they all put all the stadium seating in and everything. But we were practicing, and Vic had drove in and come down, and he saw the fans lining up around the stadium to buy tickets for the St. Louis game. So being a smart guy he was and figuring out the community, he said, hey, come on, get in, get in line, you know, We'll jog around the stadium for a warm-up. And everybody's going, God, how dumb is that? <laughs> you know. So we up the, the roadway out of the stadium. And the fans are right around the stadium, like eight deep. It was amazing. And we ran out, and as soon as they saw us, they went nuts. They were cheering, whistling you know, high-fiving it. And it was one of the best things, maybe the best thing I've ever done playing, running around that stadium. And the fans, I mean, the fans loved it. Vic was so smart. And it was so great to do. And it just made you feel like, God, I'm going to kill for them, you know. They're so great. And we all thought they were great anyway. But talk about putting the top hat on it. That was it. And we dropped jogged around the whole stadium and I never ever forgot that. I think that was a, one of the greatest things I've ever done playing, ever. That's so Fantastic great because uh, yeah. And I, I remember uh, I saw a video that I think the Timbers did with you and Jimmy Kelly talking and it was along the same lines and he said something that really sort of resonated with me, this idea that making that personal connection as a player, it felt like it didn't necessarily, I don't want to say it didn't matter how you played because of course you're a competitor and you're trying to win, but building that relationship with the city 
getting to know people. Um, you just kind of had each other's backs. And of course, people didn't necessarily know the game that well, but they know you're working hard. They know you want to win. And it's just, uh, it really does make it feel like the team's more than 11 people. It's, you know, 11 plus 20,000. Well, it was, you know, it was a a city thing, really. It was the whole, well, the whole state, you know. I mean, it was just the Timbers, you know, and it's it's our team. You know, that's my team. And we were just part of that. And we were the guys who had the shirts on and on around the field. But, you know, it's what we did in between games that really made us who we were. And, you know, and started this thing off in Portland to turn it into Soccer City USA and this fan base they have, you know, that's how we got it rolling. We just went out and met everybody, you know, we'd go all anywhere, all over the place. And we liked it, you know, some players would like it more than others. But, you know, the majority of us, cause especially in 75, because we were there all living in the same apartment complex and, you know, you had every afternoon off, so what do you want to do, you know? Oh, I'll do a clinic. Yeah, they're fun. You know, you'd meet people and, you know, you could... We didn't get team cars then, but everybody ended up getting a car. I had three cars by the end of the season. People just say, hey, what do you need? Oh, I'll take a car. Okay, take that one. <laughs> it was like... So you went out and met all these people and, you know, oh, take you to dinner, come over for dinner, you know, and we met Bob Cook, who was the Trailblazers doctor. We got really friendly with him and Ron Culp, who was part of the Trailblazers. So we got to meet the Trailblazers, you know, we'd go to the Trailblazers stadium for treatment with Ron Culp and that, you know, and there'd be the trailblazers there you know these guys and I remember going hunting with Bob Cook and the Dave towards it and all these kind of players would be camping with you and hunting you know it was just a great camaraderie it was just yeah. the city was great then I mean it, it wasn't a bit it's still not a big city it's a, like a big town you know and it's the people are great and they really appreciated having something to scream and shout about so, yeah, and so in part because, and not in part, but because of what you and, and a lot of people in the NASL years did, not just in this, let's say, market, as they say now, right, or this town, uh, but it, Major League Soccer is not going anywhere, right? We we had a desert there in the 80s and 90s, and, and now we're, you know, it's here, uh, but there's always room to build and connect to community and build culture, culture, excuse me. So how can an MLS team now, regardless of what, market they're in, whether it was an NASL pre-existing market or not, how can something that's pretty well established um, still build community and find those organic connections um, in, you know, now? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a nationwide now, you know, with the Apple TV and everything. So, you know, you can get it on TV, but it, you know, it's grassroots. It's like anything, you know, get the kids wanting to play soccer and get them to understand or meet, do, you know, like the Timbers, I hope to God, you know, they go out and about meeting kids because the kids are where it's at. You know, if a kid wants to go to the game, he's going to go to the game. 
and you're either going to take him or he's going to go with somebody else. So, you know, you get him wrong. And like back in the UK when I was growing up, your dad took you to the game. And whoever first game you went to, you'd most probably support him for life. Like me for Liverpool, you know. I got taken to Liverpool when I was a kid and ended up, go, you know, going the rest of my life. So I think it's the same here. You've got to get these kids interested. You know, they all start, everybody, just, well, not everybody, but a lot of kids play soccer. But that, how do you wrap that into the professional team? And the best way to do it is get them to meet the professional team. Yeah. You know, invite them to the stadium. Yeah. All that. Kind, oh, all yeah. kind. Meet the players. It's what they want to do, meet the players. And so a club like the Timbers, and, you know, next year it's Seattle, San Jose, and um, Vancouver that hit their 50th anniversary, but the Timbers are coming up on their 50th uh, in 2025. I'm curious, Willie, as someone who, who was there from the first season, who, you know, put on the first Timbers kit, even if it was number 12 and you thought you'd be a substitute, <laughs> someone who put on the first kit from essentially day one, what would you like to see the Timbers do with this uh, opportunity to celebrate half a century um, of soccer, professional soccer in Portland? You know, I've been hearing about it and all that stuff. And, you know, they, well, to me, it's a huge, huge, huge thing to have succeeded in 50 years. You know, back in the UK, this team's been doing it over 100 years. But, you know, this is 50 years. I mean, that's a monumental milestone, I think. And, you know, it's like I'd be standing on the top of the big pink downtown with a big banner screaming and shouting about it, you know. It's like, hey, 50 years, you know, and just make it as big as what it is, but with events and stuff, you know. That's that's what they have to do because, you know, treat it out for what it is. It's absolutely huge. 50 years. I mean, God, you know. But personally, from a player, you know, and I'm sure they'll want us to be involved, which you know, I have no problem doing. There's only the other side of that for me is, though, which is sometimes, you know, it's me, it's just my thoughts, is that, you know, they'll run the trotters out onto that field and I'll stand there and think, this is ridiculous. There's nobody's ever seen me play. Nobody knows who I am. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that part of it is, can be a disappointment for me. It's like, you know, remember me for what I was long, long time ago. You know, this kid with long hair who loved to play. And, you know, now I'm this older person that none of them have ever seen play and thinking who's that you know who are them old guys out there so that part of it i'm not a big fan of but they should promote the hell out of it because it's such a an amazing event they should make it amazing and you know back home in england in the uk they have these uh they have older players who are like ambassadors for the team who will be at the games, you know, introduce, talk to the fans, all this kind of stuff. The Timbers don't do anything like that. 
and that's been a disappointment for me is like you know there's so much we could do there's so much we've been through there's so much we understand and take advantage of it use it you know and drag us into that stadium and the, you know the, I know quite a few of the players that enjoy doing it and you know meet the fans talk to them what it was like you know to start this thing out what it was like at Civic Stadium you know the locker rooms I mean all these stories we have that we could share with these new fans you know is uh, I think it's a waste you know we could be used way better than well, we're not used at all, so that's just my and that's, thought. You know, that's how you, you talked about, I think you said you played with Bobby Charlton, right, in your first game and someone like that. Yeah. If you were to walk out onto Manchester United, uh, walk out onto Old Trafford to this day, everybody there would know who he is. Uh, and it's because of a you know continuous culture of embracing yeah. where we came from, and it's always ever-present, and it's passed down. And so I'm hoping this 50th anniversary is a chance that, you know, Major League Soccer and uh, the franchises that are experienced that can embrace their NASL years and start building that so that, you know, the players who are playing right now, when they walk out on the field 50 years from now for the 100th anniversary, the generation there is going to say, hey, that's, you know, Dario Schuperitz, that's, you know, Diego Valeri, that's Diego yeah. Carr, right? And, and everybody knows. So um, yeah. you know, I think there's a great opportunity to, to set, up our, our, you know, set up our future generations to know our history. No, and I totally agree. I mean, you know, the Timbers has a history, you know, and it started in 75, you know. We should always talk about the history because without the history, there's nothing, you know. And everybody's making their own history. Diego Valeri came in, made his, you know. Chara will make his, you know. Blanco, I mean, everybody comes in and gets a shot at making history, you know, and we're part of it. You know, I'm part of the Timbers history, which is a, to me, is a, you know, makes me feel great to just be part of it. You know, I know we were here the first year, but, you know, we're part of it. We're, you know, like, made a stone here, we're part of it. And, you know, you got to build a house somewhere and be with the guys on the foundations, you know. Well, Willie, uh, I don't know. I mean, I know we missed something. I missed something in all of these because there's just so much to talk about. But <laughs> no. I don't know if there's anything else you want to add before we before we. No, uh, you know, you know it's, uh, no, you know, I really enjoyed listening to the other podcasts that you had. I think it's a great opportunity for people like me and the guys you've already spoke to, just to, you know, impart what it was like for them and, you know, what they went through. You know, I listened to John Bain of how he had to travel all over just to get a job at the end, you know, make some money. And Chris Dangerfield was here, there and everywhere, you know. And, you know, Mickey Hoban got out of the game early and, you know, became one of the biggest things in the soccer shoe business with Adidas, Nike and all this, you know. And there's so many of us who started with the Timbers that, you know, ended up here, but we all did our own little thing after. And I think it's a great opportunity to, you know, all of us to talk about why we're here, you know, why I'm in Portland. And, you know, the, the one time there was 12 of us, I think. So, you know, it's such a beautiful place. 
but we all decided to live here, but we all did it differently. And we were all successful, you know, which has been great. Willie, thank you. Um, Thanks for coming on. Thanks for taking the time to share your stories, and I look forward to seeing you at the park. No, me too, and uh, good luck, and keep these things coming, because I'm loving every one of them. Fantastic. We'll do. All right. Good luck, Billy. Thanks, Willie. Bye. You ain't got to be 200 pounds or a giant at 7-3 To play this game called soccer, which is growing rapidly You can hear it on the radio, you will see it on TV But when the Portland boys appear, you will hear them sing with glee Green is the colour, soccer is the game We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim so let's give all of the boys a cheer for the Portland Timber.